Welcome to Agribusiness Conversations, the podcast with your business in mind. This is Amber Morin, your host. We are talking agribusiness, its hardships, its successes, and its emerging opportunities. Subscribe today to hear from leaders in the agriculture industry as they tackle challenges and provide you and your business with solutions. All right, everyone, it is with great pleasure that I introduce Andy Terry, a certified public accountant from the Wilcox area. Andy's office has a great reputation and focuses on delivering financial services with professionalism, responsiveness, and quality. My own family uses Andy for our tax purposes and our agriculture business. Andy, thank you for being on the show, and please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Amber, uh, thanks for having me. I have uh, been a CPA for going on 20 years, and have a substantial practice in uh, the agricultural arena. I come from a farming family myself, so I like to say that I can, you know, speak the language of agriculturalists, and that really helps to break down complex concepts into plain English. And it's, uh, you know, served my clients well and allowed me to build uh, quite a business here. Great. And we definitely appreciate it. So Andy, it's almost tax season and many agribusinesses are starting their preparations. What are some of the most common questions that you get from agriculture related businesses about this time of year and about taxes? A lot of clients are are really wondering, you know, what do we need to provide you? And, Mm -hmm. you know, most people have some sort of computerized accounting software now that they they keep track of their checkbook, but they may or may not have a good handle on, you know, double entry accounting and tracking the balance sheet. So I spent a lot of time with my clients helping them to understand the difference between a balance sheet and a profit and loss and helping them to to book, you know, all their assets and liabilities properly. Typical records that we'd we'd like clients to to keep but we don't necessarily need to see your, you know, obviously bank statements, credit card statements, deposit records, check stubs, pay stubs, vendor invoices, receipts, etc. You'll need those in the event that you're audited. And typically, I recommend a seven-year document retention policy for most of those items. The IRS has a three-year statute of limitations to audit your return, but if we ever did an amendment, you know, that opens it up to, you know, another year or years of audit. So seven years would typically cover that. Fantastic. Thank you. That's That was going to be my second question is the importance of record keeping. I'm assuming that you've probably ran into some issues where records weren't available. How do you deal with an issue like that? Well, we, we try to help a client recreate the records if they can from those source documents. And um, while you are allowed to use estimates, On a tax return, you do want to have some backup for anything that you claim is an expense in particular. So typically, we'll try and and help a client rebuild the records if if need be. Fantastic. And now, you said that you kind of help clients understand the difference between balance sheets and profit and loss statements. So if a client were to come to you, uh, do you just book an appointment with you for an hour or so? How does that work? What kind of service do you provide them, Andy? Typically, uh, first-time clients, we, 
you know, invite them to come in and we take a look at their history and, uh, you know, what they've been doing, what they've been providing a former accountant. And we get some, take some time there to get to know each other, make sure we'd get along and look at the state of their records. And at that point we give, you know, some recommendations on, on how to move forward, whether that's, you know, hand over your books at this point, or maybe go back and spend some more time trying to make them more accurate. Okay. Perfect. That makes perfect sense to me. So I want to touch base on some accounting methods, accrual versus cash. And what are the benefits of each? And what would you recommend a business and why? The cash method is simple. You recognize income when it's received and deduct uh, your expenses when they're paid. Most farmers are, are familiar with this. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's basically cash flow accounting. The accrual method, under that, you recognize income when it's earned, and then you deduct the expenses when they're incurred. So this is a, really a more accurate indication of economic profit versus the, the cash method, which is, you know, an indication of, of cash flow. Most farmers pay tax on the cash method because they don't want to pay tax on income they haven't received. And, you know, in fact, uh, recent changes allow more and more farmers to be able to do that. Most farmers and ranchers will use a, a modified accrual basis for their internal books. So they may book accounts receivable for crops that they've sold or custom work that they've done and book payables for invoices that they've received, but they really don't do full accrual accounting in booking you know, the value of unsold crops or, or growing crops. So the accrual method is a little more difficult because of the valuation issues associated with uh, you know, both the quantity and price of, of harvested crops. If you use a full accrual method, you also need to, to estimate and uh, reclassify you know, current expenses as investments in growing crops. So typically, I recommend that my clients, you know, use the cash method for tax purposes. And more and more lenders are looking for accrual basis financial statements from their borrowers. So, you know, we kind of make that transition to accrual or full accrual when when lenders require it. Okay, that makes sense. So that you're you're meeting your clients' needs, especially when they're looking for lending options. Moving on, what are some common deductions um, a farmer ranch can make? And are there any commonly overlooked deductions? Yeah, so, I mean, the most obvious deductions are, you know, direct growing costs and, you know, any expenses directly related to the farming or ranching business. So, you know, most people don't have trouble finding deductions. So, however, there are some that are kind of interesting and unique to to farmers and ranchers and one of those is uh paying your children um that's a good way to you know transfer some wealth to to your children and have that taxed at much lower rates you might even avoid the employment taxes on that you know depending on the child's age 
The neat thing about doing that, it also provides some earned income for the child to fund a Roth IRA. Let's just say, for example, they, they earned $6,000 over, over the year. Very likely, they'll pay zero tax on that, put it in a Roth IRA, and allow it to grow tax-free for you know 40 or 50 years. So that's a beautiful thing to, to create wealth for a family. Another thing that I see a lot of small, you know, husband and wife operations, they could set up something called a health reimbursement arrangement or an HRA. And basically that allows them to employ their spouse and provide this health reimbursement arrangement as an employee benefit. Doing so gives a full business deduction for medical insurance premiums and any unreimbursed medical expenses. Because of new, new higher standard deductions, Amber, you know, many families wouldn't be able to deduct those medical expenses. So, you know, this is a way that smaller operations can save thousands. Larger operations with, you know, multiple employees may not like this type of plan because they have to provide it to all employees in the same amounts. They can't really discriminate. So it's more of a, a mom and pop type deduction. That makes perfect sense. Well, and I like that you bring up both of these options because it's really setting up not just your business, but your family for success. And since agriculture is, you know, 98% family owned and operated, that's a big deal. So I do want to touch base on some conservation deductions that farms and ranches can apply for. So conservation expenses, you know, per the IRS are deductible. They are deductible up to 25% of income. These are commonly things that, you know, a producer would be able to apply for some sort of cost sharing through um, FSA or NRCS. Conservation expenses and, you know, definitionally are are those expenses that are not capital in nature, but normally would be capitalized to the cost of land. You know, some examples of that uh, in the ranching industry would be like uh, mesquite grubbing or contour ripping. So say you make an application with NRCS to, to apply those practices, you know, you'll receive income for that that is most likely taxable and then you'd be able to deduct the you know corresponding expenses up to 25 percent of total farm or ranch income that makes sense now um moving on towards tax credits and refunds what are some common tax credits that agribusinesses may be missing out on or that you see potentially some new clients have been missing out on the, the credits I see uh, most often missed are, are probably the solar tax credits, solar property uh, or property used to generate electricity from, from the sun qualified for a 30% tax credit in 2019. Expenditures in 2020, you know, that credit drops to 26%. But uh, that's a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction of tax. So, say a, a rancher installed a, a solar well and pump the property directly for, you know, generating solar electricity, the panels, the, 
the uh, specialized electrical equipment, even the rack to, to hold the solar panels, you basically get 30% of that cost as a dollar for dollar reduction of your tax. So that's, that's missed quite often. Another thing that's really neat for Arizona taxpayers is there's a water conservation credit and that amounts to an Arizona state tax credit equal to 75% of your out-of-pocket costs for water conservation practices. So in our area, the thing that most often qualifies for that are, are center pivot systems, but there are many, many things that uh, qualify for that to include you know, land leveling, um, converting a dirt ditch to a cement ditch, pretty much anything that NRCS would give cost share for water conservation would qualify for this credit. So again, it's the net out-of-pocket cost. So say a project was a $100,000 project and there was a 70% cost share, the farmer was only out-of-pocket, say, $30,000, they would get a credit of 75% of the $30,000. Amber, there's there's a couple more um, fuel tax credits are available for on-farm use of undyed diesel fuel uh, and gasoline. So to claim those, a farmer really needs to keep records of, you know, the use on-farm. And another newer one is a research and development credit. And larger farms that spend money on research and development of you know, new varieties or new methods may qualify for this. There are firms that specialize in doing studies to see just how much research and development credit a farmer or rancher may qualify for. And, you know, anybody interested in that, we'd refer them to, you know, a much larger firm that specializes in, in that type of credit. Perfect. Wow. Those are some major credits that um, agribusinesses can apply for. So thank you for sharing all of that. Moving on to the reporting options that farmers and ranchers have when it comes to taxes. You know, there's income averaging, postponing reporting, net operating losses. Can you explain when and why it would be appropriate to use these different reporting options? How much time do we have? <laughs> Anyways, uh, Amber, uh, I'll, I'll try and check them off here one by one and give a brief explanation. But uh, farm income averaging is a special provision that allows farmers and ranchers that have a, a higher income in one year to average a portion of that income back to the three prior years. The thought process there is if we, if we take the outlier year's income and spread it out over the three prior years, we can go back and fill up all of the lower tax brackets in those years. So that's a huge advantage, a huge advantage. Oftentimes it saves farmers or ranchers five figures and we've done a couple really big amended returns for that recently for, for new clients whose uh, former accountant maybe missed that because they don't have much experience with agriculture. In terms of postponing reporting or deferring income, there, there are a few provisions. The one that applies most to farmers would be a deferral of crop insurance proceeds. So if, uh, let's say, a cotton farmer typically would sell most of their 2019 crop in, in 2020, 
there's a special election that allows that farmer to defer the, the receipt of the crop insurance in, in 2019 to the next year. So that's a, that's a really useful election that can be made. There is a bit of controversy on that election right now because a lot of producers are, are using uh, revenue protection insurance or maybe they call it a, a whole farm revenue policy. And the IRS has stated in their, their farmer tax publication, IRS Pub 225, that you know income from these revenue protection policies cannot be deferred. However, there, there are practitioners, myself included, that believe you can actually defer those revenue policies as long as you know there was a crop that suffered specific damage from you know fire hail flood etc so while we believe you can do that that doesn't mean the irs necessarily will agree with us so i'd encourage anybody considering deferral of a revenue policy to to definitely discuss that with their tax professional for ranchers like your family there are some drought related provisions that we can can use and there are basically two options there under one you can defer the sale of of uh, calves for one year and to do that you basically look at the average number of head you sold in the prior three years compare that to the number of head that were sold in the current year and look at the difference the difference and and number of head times the average price could be deferred for one year. And to qualify for that, you have to be in a county that was designated drought county. And the USDA provides a list of those counties and they they update those quite often. The second drought-related provision is the sale of breeding stock. So, you know, many times the drought is so bad that a rancher has to sell off a substantial amount of their herd, and IRS grants a bit of relief there and allows us to defer gain recognition if that stock, if the breeding stock is replaced within a certain time frame. And and currently that's four years. Do you have any questions on those? No, they're really straightforward and I appreciate you sort of taking the time to get into the weeds a little bit here because you know that's the purpose. So I do appreciate it. All right. I think you asked about net operating losses and, you know, in general, trying to avoid a net operating loss. Um, <laughs> that's the, uh, you know, the result of more expenses than income. And if that happens, the IRS lets us still carry those back two years for, for folks in agriculture. The rest of the taxpayers aren't allowed to carry them back anymore. And if you don't carry back the loss, you, you have to make an election out of that carryback period. And any losses that uh, remain after the carryback or you've elected to forego the carryback now carry forward indefinitely. So the rules have changed here in the last couple of years, but basically now you get to use less of that net operating loss to offset taxable income in the future. You're only, you're you're limited to 80% now. Prior to the law change, it was 100%. 
one big thing we attempt to do is avoid losses, particularly through uh, depreciation elections by electing to slow down depreciation. Absolutely. Okay. Now, you, you, d- you did mention that the 80 to 100% change was fairly recent. What other changes have happened maybe over the last year or changes that we can see for the 2020 tax year? So this deduction is not new to, to 2020, but it's it's the QBI deduction or qualified business income deduction. It's still a bit misunderstood, but it amounts to a 20% you know, off-the-top deduction of whatever your net business income is, provided that you know the taxpayer's total income is is below 315,000 for married couples or 167,500 for singles. So, an example would be say a farm a sole proprietorship farm made $100,000 and that was their only source of income. Mm-hmm. The IRS has granted a $20,000 deduction and the farmer doesn't have to pay, you know, one dime to get that deduction. That's huge. It saved my clients big money in the last year that that started in 2018 okay um, so we've got one year tax returns that we've completed with that deduction and again really big savings from that wow well let's hope that one sticks around yeah another thing that I see a lot are you know aging farmers and ranchers mm-hmm. who, who may or may not you know need all the money from the sale of their crop or livestock. And one thing they might want to look at is uh, making commodity gifts to their children or their grandchildren. Okay. And the idea there is you get it out of the parent or grandparents' higher tax bracket and then to a lower tax bracket for the children. Right. Um, 2018 year, there were some pretty unfavorable changes to the way that children are taxed. Uh, they call it the kitty tax. And basically it re- resulted in, in children being taxed at the highest tax rates known to mankind, the, the trust rates. But we just got a tax bill passed in December that reverts the kitty tax back to the parents' rate instead of those higher trust rates. So. I look to try and use this more in my practice for 2020 and beyond with the idea that in many cases, if you transfer it to a child who's not in the business of farming, there might even be zero tax on, on that amount. There's a lot of, you know, I's to dot and T's to cross with that. You, you need to actually transfer ownership. The child has to pay storage, so on and so forth. So again, consult a, a tax professional before just doing that. Absolutely. Are there any other changes that, you know, the audience might need to be aware of for this year? Oh, probably. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some things I can think of that uh, I'd like to touch on are, are farmers and ranchers qualify for an exemption from the estimated tax penalty. Mm-hmm. So let's call them normal taxpayers would have to pay in taxes through estimated payments or withholdings. But farmers and ranchers can not elect not to make those payments as long as they make you know a payment of their estimated tax by January 15th or if they file and full pay their tax by March 1st. So a lot of farmers may have heard there's a, a March 1st tax filing deadline for them and that and that's why. 
Okay. Um, in the event that a farmer rancher does not owe tax, I mean, their true deadline is, is still April 15th for individual taxpayers and, you know, March 15th for entities. But uh, another thing, Amber, that I see a lot as, as my client base ages is many clients haven't paid much into Social Security over the years. Mm-hmm. They've always played games with trying to keep income really low or forming entities to save employment tax. And, you know, I guess my message would be don't be afraid to pay a little self-employment tax or Social Security tax, uh, particularly for spouses who are active in the business. Young spouses that have never paid anything into the system don't qualify for disability insurance. Mm-hmm. And a disabled spouse really affects, you know, the, the primary breadwinner's ability to win bread. So one thing I do counsel clients is if you want to play games and, and keep Social Security low, realize that, you know, there's a price to pay in the future. And you may want to consider taking those savings and using them to fund a traditional or Roth IRA every year. Exactly. Some of these different financial approaches. Okay. I really don't have much else. All right. Well, with that, uh, you know, I my final question was if there was anything that you missed that you wanted the audience to know, and it sounds like we kind of wrapped up. But Andy, thank you for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it. What is the best way for producers, agribusinesses, and individuals to reach you? Probably via email. And my email address is Terry at aterrycpa.com. And of course, they could always call. The phone number is 520-384-6280. Fantastic, Andy. Thank you. That wraps up this episode of Agribusiness Conversations. Subscribe today on Apple iTunes for iOS devices and podbean.com for Android devices. I look forward to having the next conversation with y'all.